Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to everybody in this room. Welcome to all those joining us online. It's good to have all of us together, either virtually or in person. On your way in the door, you should have picked up a message note sheet. If you didn't do that, feel free to get up. They're at the back tables there, as well as out in the uh, foyer area there. So that'll be kind of the drill as you're coming in. You can grab message notes that way. Those of you online, your online host can direct you on where to access the message notes electronically. Well, uh, several years ago, it was a, an article in the Indy Star that caught my attention back when you used to like read the Indy Star in actual paper format and those kinds of days. I know young people in the room, that's actually the newspaper was actually like delivered to your house and you actually sat down at the table. You remember those days, right? And, and so there was a headline in the Indy Star that said that um, Indianapolis was hosting a gathering of, and it caught my attention, a gathering of atheists agnostics, secular humanists, and free thinkers. Interesting. And they said their goal was to get together and envision a different America. America that was free from faith, that religion had so distorted and corrupted our current America that they wanted to get together and dream about something different. And they got together and Evidently, several years before this gathering, they had formed an organization called the Freedom From Religion Foundation, and they started a campaign all around the country, and some of you may have come across some billboards that you've seen. Here's a few billboards that they began to populate, and so, in reason we trust, enjoy life now, there is no afterlife. See the organization there, Freedom from religion.org. All right, next one. Um, of course, Richard Dawkins, one of their poster child spokespeople of that would be the God of the Old Testament, arguably the most unpleasant character notice in all fiction. And Dawkins may have been one of the most well-known atheists and secular humanists who had written an awful lot. And then there was um, some more. There was a bus campaign done these are actually buses down in Bloomington. Sorry, all you IU fans. I'm sure this would never occur in West Lafayette, but let's just imagine, right? Down in Bloomington, there was a campaign they put on. Um, you can be good without God and sleep in on Sundays. Yeah, Bloomington, Indiana, that's what's running around. And then, like three weeks ago or so, a friend sends me a headline that I thought was, I thought it was a joke until... I read the article, but Harvard has a new chaplain. Did you know that? Harvard University, their chaplain is an atheist, and his mantra is good without God. Now, if you know the backstory of Harvard University, it was founded as a training school for clergy. Its first president was a pastor. The goal, it was like a Bible college. It was a seminary. That's Harvard University's foundation. That's its founding documents. If you go and read, you can Google all about Harvard. They have a whole historical on their website. You can read about the history. And, and then just last month, the August 26th New York Post has this article that they've appointed Greg Epstein as their new chaplain. And here's his philosophy and his approach. We don't look to a God, notice little g, for answers. We are each other's answers. That is the essence, the extension of the secular humanist mindset. We are each other's answers. 
Which begs the question, how, how did we get here? I mean, I had to read the article two or three times and text the friend back and say, are you sending me something just to poke fun at me as a pastor, or is this is real? It's, it's legit. This is the newly appointed chaplain. Someone asked me this week, they said, Eric, what's the definition of chaplain? I said, well, I thought it had something to do with somehow representing God to groups of people, like chaplain of the cults organization, I think their view is I represent somehow a, a spiritual or kind of a God-centered component of the organization, but Harvard has a different view of the word chaplain, I guess. How did we get here? Well, listen, if from, if from birth you've been told there is no God, if morality is just a social construct kind of created by elites in power to oppress others, if you've been told you're an animal aided by time and chance, so no survival of the fittest, if the meaning of life is, you know, to be happy and to feel good, you know, don't hurt anyone else, keep it consensual, but if this is the messaging you're receiving day after day after day, if there is no God, if there is no morality, if you're just an animal, if you just do you however you want to define you, then we should not be surprised when people act amorally, in self-interest, and in violent ways. Now, I'm not suggesting that everyone who's adopting the secular humanist mindset or the freedom from religion position is living that way. What I'm trying to draw attention to is how did we get here? What is the cultural moment? What is the increasingly spiritual landscape here in America? I don't think it is that far removed from where we find Jeremiah in the Old Testament, in the storyline we're in. Remember, Jeremiah was a prophet to the nation of Israel at a time when kind of Israel had formed their own freedom from religion foundation. It wouldn't have been a big stretch in Jeremiah's day for him to pick up the Jerusalem star and have a headline read something like, Who needs Yahweh? We can be good without God. That would, at Jeremiah's day, Jerusalem's star type period, and that's where we're picking up the story in our journey through the Old Testament. If you haven't done so already, open up your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 26. The main text will be up here on the screens for you as well. So here's kind of a typical day in the life for Jeremiah. Remember last week we looked at Jeremiah's call. We looked at the question, are you sure, God? God, are you sure? And we landed with, yeah, God's quite sure, and he had to reinforce to Jeremiah that, you know what, Jeremiah, you're going to need to be like a fortified city, you're going to need to be a bronze wall, an iron gate, because you're going to need a sense of internal fortitude, you're going to need a, a stability and a perseverance to stand firm, because what I'm sending you into and the work I'm sending you to do is going to be really, really hard. You're going to go into a setting where the people of the land, the leaders of the land, aren't going to really appreciate what you have to say, aren't really going to be interested in what you have to say. 
So Jeremiah is doing, all through the book of Jeremiah, he's known as the weeping prophet as we covered last week, and he's going where God tells him to go, and he's speaking what God tells him to speak to whomever God tells him to speak it. In this case, Jeremiah 26, he says in verse 7, the priests, the prophets, and all the people heard Jeremiah speak these words in the house of the Lord. So day in the life of Jeremiah, he's in the house of the Lord, he's speaking God's word. Notice there are priests and prophets there. (laughs) listening to Jeremiah speaking, because not everyone with the title priest and prophet would necessarily be one paying attention to Yahweh. We'll come back to that in a minute. But he's trying to sift through all of that. But as soon as Jeremiah finished telling all the people everything the Lord had commanded him to say, there's Jeremiah's faithfulness and obedience. That's what we know about this man. He's being faithful to do what God's asked him to do, speaking everything the Lord's given him to speak. Notice, the priest the prophets, and all the people seized him and said, you must die. Well, that sermon went over great. Now, I've had a lot of messages that, you know, just weren't very good for a lot of years, but thankfully, none of you have ever seized me and said something like, well, you must die. You might have said, well, why don't you take a vacation? You need a few weeks off, you know, that kind of thing. (laughs) It's like that conversation you have. You ever have those conversations? I have them sometimes with you, and I know you all mean well when you say this, but like, especially those of you younger will say this to me. You'll say, well, Pastor Eric, you don't look that old. (laughs) I think that's a compliment. I've decided. Yes? It's a compliment, right? Well, you you don't don't look that old, right? (laughs) And so Jeremiah is just doing what God's asked him to do, and the people, they don't want to hear it. For 23 years, this was his portion and cup. Now, some of you have been involved in spiritual leadership positions in various arenas, local church or parachurch ministries or whatever, you know, whatever setting you're in, you've been involved in trying to provide some kind of spiritual leadership. What if you ran the tape out 23 years, this is your kind of dailiness? God gives you some words, God gives you clarity about what he wants you to do, and you faithfully obey. You go to political leaders, you go to religious leaders, you go to business leaders, you go to common people, you go to anyone where he sends you, and you speak whatever he tells you, and the response is consistently, Jeremiah, you have gone off the spiritual deep end. We don't want to hear anything you've got to say. We want to envision a different kind of Israel that's free from all your Yahweh-speaking stuff. That brings us to what God decides to do now. That's the setting that Jeremiah is ministering. For 23 years he's doing this, and that brings us now to a really important date in our journey through the Old Testament. It's 586 B.C. So remember 586 B.C. I put it in your notes this week and put it, flip over two chapters, Jeremiah 29. I want you to write in the header of your Bibles in Jeremiah 29, right? 2 Kings 24 and 25. So somewhere near Jeremiah 29 in your Bible, right, 2 Kings 24 and 25. Why? Because to understand the time frame and the backdrop of the prophet's writings, you've got to go to the chronological outlay of 1 and 2 Kings and 1 and 2 Chronicles. In this case, 2 Kings 24 and 25 give you the context to Jeremiah 29. Because 586 B.C. is what is known as the exile. A new superpower named Babylon has risen up, modern-day Iraq, and they have set their sights on this little small group called Judah, the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom of God's people, Judah. 
and they've decided to invade Judah and wipe out the temple and destroy the walls. And then they take 10,000 of the Israelite people from Judah and they export them 700 miles east into modern-day Iraq, into Babylon. Now, the 10,000 that they rounded up, they rounded up the most influential, the leader of leader types, the ones that had the ability to kind of make a difference. Um, they, they got the most influential, the wealthy, the, the people who could, like, oppress others. They wanted to take them away, brainwash them in the ways of Babylon, and send them back and oppress everyone else. That was their plan. So 10,000 of them get exported. This is known as the exile. And who's left behind in Jerusalem with a pile of rubble, with gates burned and walls broken and temple ransacked? Who's there? The common people, kind of the peasants, the ordinary, the ones who don't have much influence, according to the Babylonian leaders. You want to guess which group Jeremiah was in? Do you think Jeremiah was exported with the 10,000 influential or left behind with the common people? He was left behind, <laughs> which shows you another, right? Nobody's listening to him anyway. Who's this guy? He's a prophet of Yahweh. Leave him behind. Nobody listen to him. He, he, he's no good. We can't do anything with him. That's Jeremiah. The one guy in this scene who's dialed into the King of Kings and Lord of Lords is left behind in the rubble in Jerusalem while the rest are sent 700 miles east into Babylon. This is known as the exile, the exile of the southern kingdom of Judah in 586. And in this setting, Jeremiah writes the book of Lamentations. Lamentations is like a poetic reflection of this sequence of events. So we just read through Lamentations. Those of you reading through the Bible this year with us, we just read through this. So he's riding in a pile of rubble with gates burned and walls broken and temple ransacked and friends and family uprooted and displaced. He's reflecting on that. Hence the title of the book, a book of laments, Lamentations, a poetic reflection of the exile. And listen to how Eugene Peterson puts it this way. I put this quote in your notes. Exile is the worst that reveals the best. It's hard believing, says Faulkner, but disaster seems to be good for people. When the superfluous, which means unnecessary, is stripped away, we find the essential, and the essential is God. Normal life is full of distractions and irrelevancies, then catastrophe, dislocation, exile, illness, accident, job loss, divorce, death. The reality of our lives, hear this, is rearranged without anyone consulting us or waiting for our permission. We are no longer home. And so this morning, we're going to ask the question, God, how did we get here? How did we get here? And to press it one step further, God, what are we supposed to do now that we're here? We're going to look at two parts of this. We're going to look at kind of God's expectations when we find ourselves in a place of exile, 700 miles away from where we thought, hoped, planned, or prayed we'd be. And then we're going to look at the why he might be behind the uprooting and the displacing in the first place. So Jeremiah 29, notice the title in your Bibles, is a letter to the exiles. 
So Jeremiah's in Jerusalem. He's got 10,000 Israelites 700 miles east in Babylon, and he sits down to write them a letter to give them some instructions about how they're supposed to handle this uprooting and displacing. Verse 4, this is a part of his letter. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Notice what the Lord says. Who carried the people? The Lord said. Ultimately, the exile wasn't Babylon's doing. Ultimately, the exile was a move of the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth. God carried his people 700 miles from where they wanted to be. God uprooted. God displaced. He just used Babylon as a tool, much like he used Pharaoh to extract the Israelites out of Egypt. He's using ba- Babylon thinks they're running the show. They think they're the center of the world, and they just are going to realize shortly they're actually just a tool at the hands of the sovereign Lord. There can be only one capital S sovereign. And the Lord's like, I, I'm running the show. I'm dealing with some stuff, which raised the question, God, why would you do this kind of thing? You're carrying your people where? Notice verse 5, build houses and settle down. Plant gardens, eat what they produce, marry, have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. So the first thing I wrote down, like what is God expecting of us when we find ourselves in an exile-like season, 700 miles from where we thought we would be, is embrace current reality for what it is. Or say it another way, flourish where you're planted. Flourish where you're planted. You say, well, what's God expect of us in Babylon? The same thing He expects of His people in Jerusalem. Trust, worship, surrender, obey, devotion, same thing. Nothing's changed, just geographically you're different, but His expectation about how the people are to relate to Him is the same. I'm looking for your hearts to be yielded to me. Now remember what got us here. 23 years of a prophet who was like a fortified city, an iron gate and a bronze wall, speaking the word of the Lord, and 23 years of groups of people saying, Jeremiah, you must die, throwing him into a pit, beating him up, casting him away. And God's like, we're not making a lot of progress here, Jeremiah, so I'm going to uproot. Babylon, come in. Uproot, displace. And something happens in this space, and here he's saying, I know this isn't where you plan to be, I know this isn't where you wanted to be, but I want you to not be preoccupied with what was. I don't want you to daydream about the good old days, because again, God's not looking at so many good of the old days. There was an occasional outbreaking of a God-centered king like Josiah we, we looked at a few weeks ago that would crop up and like turn the nation back towards the Lord. But for the most part, it was a steady downward slope to godlessness and immorality and rebellion. And So God's like, I don't want you to reminisce about what used to be. I don't want you to daydream about what could be. I want you to embrace what is. I want you to get your heart's and your heads and your hands around where you are. I call it the sacrament of the present moment. 
And we don't have to be back in Jerusalem to be with God. We don't have to get out of our circumstantial exile to somehow get connected to God. No, we can be just as near to Him in Babylon as we are in Jerusalem. And guess what's the training ground for that reality is exile. Exile trains you in this space of releasing what used to be, maybe letting go of what you want it to be, and just being fully present in the here and the now. You know where your exile trains you in that. Because whatever their five-year plans were, and whatever leadership groups, I picture those 10,000 leaders, no doubt, lots of political leaders, business leaders, economic leaders, religious leaders, all these leader types who all have five-year strategic plans and all these other things going on for the nation and the people and all that. I guarantee you those folders are set aside when you're in exile. You're just thrust into the present moment. Listen to what Oswald Chambers says about this. Do you mean to tell me I can live a holy life there in Babylon? If you cannot hear this, the grace of God is fiction. External surroundings make no difference to your inner life, but our inner life makes a telling difference on our external surroundings. Yes, church, that's it right there. Do you see what God's trying to cultivate? He's trying to cultivate a people whose interior world is going to radiate out and make a difference to a bunch of external reality that the Lord sees and Jeremiah sees. It's got to change. The billboards have to change. The messaging has to change. The response of the people has to change. A whole bunch of stuff has to change. And God's like, yep, this is how we're going to get change. Exile. I'm going to take a group 700 miles away from where they wanted to be. And I want to get them to embrace flourishing where you're planted. Marry, have sons and daughters, pray for the land, flourish where you're planted, embrace current reality for what it is. Don't just sit there and pray and pray and pray to go back and reminisce about what used to be or daydream about what could be. Just be fully in the present moment. That's one of the first things. If this morning finds you Receiving this message in a space of your own personal exile, I think the first movement the Lord might be, hey, are you taking some time to see current for what it is and to settle down and to open your eyes and to actually begin to turn your heart toward God in your current Babylon? Your personal 586 experience can be a 586 with God. It's possible. Not everybody. It can go the other way too. But God's looking for a heart that turns towards Him in the current. Now let's watch what happens. Verse 8. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Now remember, Jeremiah is writing the letter to the exiles. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. Well, there's so much here, right? I mean, so the second thing I wrote down was, what's God expect of us when we land in these kinds of 586 places in our lives is exercise discernment in finding wise counsel. You know, not every bit of advice you receive in, Bab- in Babylon 
comes from a base of God-centered wisdom. You know that, right? Not everyone claiming to speak spiritual truth or offer spiritual advice comes from a place of God-centered wisdom. What does God say actual titles of people, (laughs) prophets, priests, those spiritual leaders, notice the people are going to the prophets and telling them what they want the prophets' dreams to be. (laughs) Wow. Hey, you need to go to sleep tonight. You need to have a really good dream about A, B, C, and D, and you need to come back and report that this is a dream from the Lord about A, B, C, and D. And these prophets and these diviners and these spiritual leaders, they're making bank off of this. I mean, there are people paying them tons of money to hear what, in the language of the New Testament, what their itching ears want to hear. And if you just want to tell people what they want to hear, you're going to have a pretty good platform and get a lot of followers and probably have a nice lifestyle, but you just aren't going to be representing Yahweh. What's the Lord say? Do not listen to them. (laughs) There's a lot of them. Right? And young people, those of you younger listening or online or here in the room, listen, our current spiritual landscape, hear this, is not lacking for advice. It has a lot of lack for wisdom. And to make sure, what are you going to allow into your heart? What are you going to kind of allow your mind to say, I'm going to go that way. I'm going to build my life around that spiritual wisdom. Is it God-centered? Is it based on His God-breathed Word? This is the equivalent to Jeremiah speaking God's wisdom. This. That's why we as a congregation are going to spend our lives. If you want to know one of the things Eagle Church is about, we're going to be consistently unpacking Genesis to Revelation. For how long? For the rest of our lives. Because we're in an environment that's not lacking for spiritual advice and spiritual input. But we have got to be a people grounded in God-centered wisdom. Can I get an amen from that somewhere? And you'd like to think it's around every corner. But listen... Young people, ask those in the room who don't look so young anymore. Ask them. Ask them if they've seen a shift in the trajectory of this in their lifetime. Are you with me? Those of you older in the room, you know. Do you sense the drift? Do you see the movement? How did we get here? Huh? Slowly and steadily. Slowly and and steadily, in the words of Coach Dungey, a death by inches. And so when you find yourself in your own personal 586, 700 miles from where you wanted to be or hoped to be or prayed to be, listen, you need a healthy filter of discernment on what you're going to allow into your heart and your mind to guide your life. Who are you going to listen to? What advice are you going to receive? What's going to be in the category of God-centered wisdom? And I would argue 
not a ton of that is going to be displayed in 140 characters or less on social media. Or 45 seconds or less on TikTok. You know, the latest TikTok theologian is espousing lots of spiritual things. I would argue it might be bankrupt on God-centered wisdom. And we need a filter. We've got to help each other. We need community. Then we get together and say, well, run that through the filter of Genesis to Revelation, this God-breathed book. Does that seem to be that represents God's character and God's heart and God's ways? That, does that provide guidance that the voice of the Lord would say? That's in the pattern of the way of Jesus or not. And if it's not set it aside in the language of Proverbs, set it aside in a category called foolishness. Set it there. Don't build your life on that. Because when you get to the middle of Babylon, you are not going to lack for all kinds of spiritual noise. Huh. But how about the irony? The one guy who's offering God-centered wisdom is 700 miles away. He's in the middle of Jerusalem, and he's writing a letter. Remember, he's just with the peasants and the ordinary and the forgotten and the overlooked. He's there scribbling out a word from the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth, sends it 700 miles for a voice of the Lord to come into all the spiritual noise and say, you listen to this. And I have to ask myself, North America 2021, you plot yourself, where are we on that graph? And I think our current cultural moment is more exile-like than perhaps we want to own. So the first movement, say you find yourself in an exile season, 586, 700 miles away. Flourish where you're planted. Embrace current reality for what it is. And make sure you've got a filter of discernment through this God-breathed book, that you've got to decide, what is wisdom? What am I going to allow into my heart and my mind and my life? What am I going to build? Where's wise counsel coming to me in this space? And it most likely won't be from the popular huh, and what everyone else might be doing. It might be coming from the corridor of obscurity. Look for maybe the quieter spots or that little corner here. It's probably not going to be front and center shouting, oh, that's Jeremiah sending a letter from 700 miles away. There's wisdom. And then verse 10, what happens? Third, third thing, he says, this is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. Now, if you're the people, you would have said, uh, could you say that again? How many years? You said seven years, didn't you? Did I hear you right? How many? Seventy. Mm. Ah. You would have just taken a deep sigh right there. I'm pretty sure while you're on the wagons headed to Babylon, you weren't thinking a 70-year run over there. So the third principle here is, I think God, when we end up in exile, we should expect an extended stay. 
I think the general pattern, I don't know about you, but my relationship with the Lord is such that God's timetable is just so much different than my timetable. Generally speaking, the Lord's just slower and longer than I prefer. Maybe that's just me, but that just my, I can't think of many times in my walk with God where I've said to God, you're just ahead of me on that one, Lord. You're just moving a little too fast for me there, Lord. But man, it's like every Tuesday, I think it might be saying, Lord, how, how long, oh Lord? Why haven't you moved that along faster, Lord? Have you noticed that with God? Like, he, he's just got a, like, his idea of uprooting, tearing down, displacing, settle down, take a deep breath, you're going to be here for 70 years. Which gives us a window into something that the Lord's up to, kind of a bridge into our why section here a little bit. But the window is, there must be more on the agenda than just getting the Israelites out of exile. That's important, because remember, their destiny, God said, I'm going to give you a land, I'm going to build a nation, I'm going to give you a people, you're going to display my character, my heart, my life, I mean, you're, going to, you're going to radiate who I am to the surrounding nations, but they're 700 miles away. He's not done with them yet. You see, he's up to something beyond just getting them back to their homeland, getting them out of exile. I know for me, when I hit exile season, Lord, I just want out of exile. Could you just get me out of this 586? Just end, get me out of it. The Lord is at work to do those things. It's not that he's uh, you know, inattentive to those prayers, I think it's just another layer. I would offer you the other layer is, hey, Simpson, I'm at work on some other fronts here. It's not just getting you out of exile, it's who you are becoming while you're there. It's probably not going to be 70 years for whatever your personal exile, but it might be 70 days, 70 weeks, 70 months. Like you're, It's going to be longer than we prefer it to be. And you say, what is the Lord up to in that? He's up to who are you becoming in that place of exile so that when he does displace them back, return them back home, he's not just returning the same group of people. He's returning a people, what, that have been formed and shaped through the 70 years in Babylon by looking at their current reality for what it is, by making sure they're building themselves around wise, God-centered counsel, and by settling down and just saying, probably going to be a lot longer than I wanted it to be. So just raise some families 70 years. You're going to have some kids and some grandkids. Build some houses. Get to know the people. Pray for the land. Learn how to flourish where you're planted. Which then, all of that, church, is a backdrop to perhaps the most famous verse in the whole book of Jeremiah, the one on your refrigerator or living room wall that gets at the why this, why now, God, why would you do it this way? Verse 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope 
and a future. Then, notice verse 12, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Do you see what's the Lord up? What's the Lord after in the exile season? What's he want in that 586? Right there. I want to build something in this people who seek me with all their heart. Verse 14, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. Notice all the declarations. There's only one sovereign Lord over this scene. It's like, I'm sure while they're sitting there in Babylon, they're thinking the Babylonians are running everything. The Babylonians are calling all the shots. And Jeremiah gets a word from the Lord and just, hey, lift up your eyes. Look up and see the sovereign Lord like Isaiah 6 talked about several weeks ago. He's in his throne room. The train of his robe fills the temple. He's surrounded with six-winged seraphs who are burning with a, a glory of the Lord that says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That Lord is still on his throne, still working out his plans, still working out his purpose. Look up you exiles. Look up. I am your God. You are my people. I will fulfill my plans and my purposes. But we've got some work to do. And so the big question of the day, why, why this? Why exile? Why 586? Why uproot? Why displaced? I wrote it in your notes this way. I think there's a shifting of the kingdom in our lives that happens in exile. When you track the trajectory of the story of this book from 586 forward, after the 70 years is over, which it ends up being 70 years that they're there, when that ends, here's what you see about Judah. Judah's not the same. They're not the same. Now, it's not 100%. There's still plenty of rebellious pockets here and there, but the core of this group shifted. The kingdom of their hearts. Kingdom is a Bible term for the reign and rule of God. Where God said, hey, I, I need to shift some things inside of you. The things that were important to you pre-exile, they need to be different post-exile. Your value system, the ordered loves of your heart, that's got to get sorted out. There's got to be a transformation in here. The kingdoms have got to shift. And I think that's a window for us. When God sends us in to our own 586s, when he uproots, when he displaces, when he allows some walls to be broken, some gates to be burned, when we end up 700 miles from where we want to be, what is he up to? Somewhere at the core of it, there's a shift in the kingdom of our hearts. There's a deeper role of the reign and rule of God in our lives. Kingdom of self dies a little more. Kingdom of God grows a little bigger and stronger and more complete in us. Yes, yes, all of that. It reminded me several years ago when we used to have a, a playground set in our backyard. It needed to be stained. You know, it was one of those wood playgrounds and it faded through the years. And I looked out and I said, I just need to restain the playground. And I didn't know how to do that. I don't know how to do most of the things. So I call really smart people that are around here to help me with things like that. I call, I called the guy who had a power washer. He's like, yeah, you just need to power wash, like blow the stain. It'll, it'll like clean it and it'll blow the old stain off. He says, you'll be good to go. Let it dry a couple days and start restaining. You're good to go. 
So I borrowed his power washer, and I fire it up. I never used one before, and I go out there like I'm washing a car, and I'm trying to wash the, and not a lot's happening. Like, it's getting wet. It's kind of brushing off a little dirt, but the old stain's still there. I'm like, well, this isn't working so well. So I call him up. I'm like, what's up? Your power washer's not stripping the stain off. And he said this to me, push the nozzle a little closer to the wood. When you get the nozzle a little closer to the wood, I said, be careful. If you get it too close, it'll strip the wood right off. I said, all right, let's go. Let's go. So I took that, pushed it a little closer, and Five eighty-six, exile seasons of our life is where God takes the power nozzle and presses it a little closer to those inmost places of the heart. And he says, it's time to strip away some things that need to be stripped away. Because God's really concerned about who we're becoming as a people And notice what he said to the Israelites, hey, I'm going to rebuild, I'm going to restore, I'm going to return. All that's like yes and amen, but before I do that, there's some things that got to get torn down. There's some things that got to get stripped away. It's the power nozzle to the inward places of the heart. Some places need to get cleansed. Some stuff needs to be torn down. And I wonder if that's where the Lord find some of us today. Have to believe there's some listening in your own personal 586 moment. And so what we're going to do as we wrap up, worship team, why don't you come on back up. We're, we've got a song that the team's going to lead through that, I, that I'm kind of referring as an anthem to those in exile. And so maybe you're here this morning, you're joining us from wherever you are around the country and you've got a marriage, a marriage exile going on. You've got a family life exile going on. You've got some things that are crumbling all around at home. And you've been saying, God, how did we get here? Or others of you, it's a, it's a career and ministry or a work front exile where you had all kinds of plans and you had all kinds of dreams and you had your life mapped out and it's just a pile of rubble. Or others of you are calling it like an illness exile, like your physical body is like one giant 586 experience. It's 700 miles away from wherever you want it to be and you don't understand. You say, God, how? How did we get here? And so where in this space, here's what I want to encourage you with. As Molly sings through this song, I just want you to allow these words to kind of be sung into the soul, into the heart, into the middle of your personal Babylon. I want you to just, I want there to be some sing some hope, sing some perspective, sing some God-centered wisdom into, I know it's really hard when we get to this, it's so hard because our current realities are so dominant and seem so overwhelming. We can't see. We can't see to the rebuild and the restore and the renew. We're just in the tearing down stuff. 
And as she sings this, I want you to hear a word from the Lord. If God could speak to the Israelites in 586 B.C., at a time when it was the deepest valley and darkest days they'd ever walked through, if he could say, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future, if he could say that to them there, he says that to us today, now. I see you. I know you. I hear you. I'm with you. I've not forgotten you. I'm in the rubble. I'm in the tearing down. I'm in the stripping away. I know exile feels so intense and it feels like it's never going to end. But the Lord's saying, like he said to the Israelites there, I promise you, exile might be your current. But hear this, it's not the end. There's still more to be written. And the Lord will return and he will restore and he will renew and he will rebuild. So let these words sing some hope into that space. Are you passing by? Is your burden weighing heavy? Is it all too much to carry? Let me tell you about my Jesus. Do you feel that empty feeling? Cause shame's done all it's stealing And you're desperate for some healing Let me tell you about my Jesus Way. 
go ahead and have a seat. Go ahead and have a seat. If you're seated beside your spouse or loved one, family member, friend, uh, and you know uh, they might be going through some aspect of 586 stuff, I just want you to grab their hand. And uh, let's pray together. Just grab their hand and give it a good tight squeeze. And if you, you might be seated by yourself and you're on your own exile stuff and just, just want you to picture the Lord, just Jesus grabbing your hand right now and just giving it a firm squeeze. You're not alone. that line from that song just right now this day this moment let my Jesus change your life just invite him in whatever wherever no matter how dark no matter how deep no matter how confusing no matter how overwhelming just say Jesus help help me pour out your spirit in the middle of our personal Babylons and give us eyes to see and a heart to understand and strength to persevere and a humility to trust. That you're writing a script and a part of a bigger plan and so much of it we just don't see and we don't understand and I, I just have that that image where I just feel like we're a little bit like we're our own, I think, followers of Jesus in North America 2021. I think we're a little bit like exiles in a foreign spiritual land. I think this is us. And so would you help us? Thank you for your word that sends us a message of wisdom and perspective. Help us to band together and Hold on to each other. And then give us the eye of faith to look beyond what is and even into what will be when you do restore and you do rebuild. Like what the psalmist says, lift up your eyes to the mountains. Know that your help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Lift up our eyes today. Breathe your help and your hope into us. We pray in Jesus' holy name.